All right, so this is the third episode of the Stock Talk podcast. And like every podcast, this one is associated with a contest. So if you go to my Seeking Alpha blog, you will see um, once in a while that I have a contest up. All you have to do is answer three simple questions about trading, and I'll read through them. The set of answers that I think is the most thought-provoking and realistic will be the answers of the winner. So this contest, this episode's contest, was for uh, two free weeks of Seeking Alpha Pro, but the winner this time, let me go in here. So the winner this time is James WWW, and he says he already has Seeking Alpha Pro, and he would prefer something else. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna move the Seeking Alpha Pro contest back two weeks. In other words, for the next podcast, the prize will be two free weeks of Seeking Alpha Pro. And for this time, I'm gonna be giving James, I believe he said he wanted, uh, well, I'll talk to James personally about what award I can give him for his answers. So let's get into it. The uh, general format of this podcast is I go into the question that I asked at the beginning, and then I'm going to look at the winner's answers and discuss them. And we're going to go in-depth as far as we can um, so that this podcast isn't too basic. And uh, we'll just begin, because the questions are rather basic, I believe. I mean, they're not in-depth questions. It's a simple one sentence question so we can build up from the basics and go more in depth my plan is to aim for about an hour maybe fit it in 45 minutes or so so let's get started now i'm going to just go ahead and read the three questions verbatim so you know what this podcast is going to be about so the first question was what are the advantages of trading options over stock question two what is your best order entry tip? Question three, what's the minimum amount of capital you believe you need to start with to begin trading or investing? Let's start with question number one. So what I was asking here is, why should we trade options instead of stock? And this is an important question because it's asked often. Many people believe that options are more risky than stock and that's why they tend to avoid them and don't recommend for example um, the big-time investors you see on CNBC those uh, those pundits will usually say just play with stock because it's safer and they're for the most part incorrect with that recommendation I think what they're trying to do is avoid having to deal with something that's more complex because options certainly are more complex than stock and when you get into combinations of multiple options on a single stock to make a single position for a trade it can become very complex so let's go ahead and look at James's answer and um, what I'm gonna do is his answer is rather long it's about a paragraph I'm going to go through it and I'm going to stop to delve into more detail when uh, I believe it needs to be done. So let's start. James says, options allow you to predetermine exactly how much risk in capital you take. Although this will depend on the strategy used, like, for example, buying call options. Alright, so here he makes a very good point. Um, so when you buy stock, you basically know how much you can lose because all your money is in that stock. If the stock goes to zero, you're out everything you put in. But the reality is stocks almost never go to zero. So your risk isn't exactly all the money you put in. But for options, there is this extra reality factor where you can lose everything you put in 
Um, for example, on a, on a long call option, if you buy it at the money, you've essentially got a 50-50 chance of losing everything you put in. Um, but there is an advantage here because there's less calculation as to what your real risk is. If you want to understand how much you risk by buying, let's say, $1,000 worth of Apple stock, you need to look at the fundamentals of Apple and see how much you really can lose. What I mean by that is when you buy stock, you're entitled to a portion of the company, but most shares that most people buy aren't exactly the best share of that company. It's a little confusing, but if you know the difference between, for example, class B stocks and A stocks, the main difference here is if you buy the better stock of the same company, so Apple B versus Apple A, you are entitled to, in the case of a bankruptcy, get what they liquidate faster than the people who bought the class A stocks. So class A doesn't give you the first payout. There's a very uh, regulated order in which people are paid out in the case of a company going bankrupt or being sold off. So what could happen is, let's say, Apple goes bankrupt and they have to liquidate all of their assets, they have to start selling their office furniture to pay back all of their investors. Now if you're holding class A stocks, you might not get anything because we might find that Apple's already liquidated everything, they paid out everything to the class B stockholders, and you're left with nothing. Generally, what I like to do to look at the max risk of a stock is to look at what's called shareholder equity. That tells you how much of the um, company, in terms of a press percentage, that you'll be getting. So if you look at the net equity of a company, and let's say it's a million dollars, the shareholder equity there is the amount that the company will pay out in the event of a bankruptcy. So if we've got like 32% shareholder equity and it's a million dollar company, what you're getting is a company that's gonna be paying out $32,000 to its shareholders after they liquidate. Um, in reality, this isn't something we have to worry about because very rarely does a stock go bankrupt. And if you're playing with a blue chip or just any particularly popular stock, you don't have to worry at all because someone's gonna step in and buy that company if everything goes bad. So if they have a lot of debt, someone's gonna step in and take care of it. The company will probably stay on the stock exchange. It might be moved to the pink sheets or something of, of lower quality. But that's essentially the reality of things. Stocks don't go to zero. So when you say the max risk is $1,000, when you buy $1,000 worth of stock, that's not actually true. It depends on what type of stock you have, and it depends on how popular the company is. Now for options, it's a bit of a different story because an option has, an option is, is a contract, and a contract can have zero value. For example, let's say you have a call option, and that's for March, and the stock is trading at $30 now, and in March, we see it falls to 28. If the stock option you bought was at a strike price of $30, that stock, uh, that stock option just goes to zero. So you actually do lose everything you put in. That's what James was getting at here. He says that you know how much risk in capital you take, and that's exactly right. Um, for a plain long call option. Now if you're doing other options, if you're selling options for example, your risk is going to be a lot more complex to calculate and in the case of selling more options than you're buying, you're going to be exposed to almost unlimited risk. So if you sell, for example, a call option on a biotech firm and that biotech firm discovers the cure for cancer tomorrow, what we're going to see is the stock skyrocket and because options act more um, exponentially than linearly in how the price changes you could lose everything you could owe your broker money so you really have to look in depth 
in how much risk you're taking on. But if you're just playing simple long options, like long calls and long puts, the max risk really is whatever amount of capital you put in. So it's easy to calculate in that respect. So that's certainly an advantage when you play options. You know a bit more about what you stand to lose. James continues, he says, the main advantage of options is the leverage they offer you. Now, I've heard a lot of people, a lot of professional options traders say that you're not really getting any leverage when you buy options. Um, for futures contracts, that's certainly more true. If you're getting a futures contract, you're borrowing money to buy more shares. In options, that's not necessarily true. It, it acts like, an option acts like a leveraged uh, financial vehicle, but it isn't exactly leverage. You're buying the rights to a fixed amount of shares of stock. If you buy a call option, generally you're buying the rights to buy 100 shares of stock later. It's a fixed amount of shares. So it's not exactly leveraged, but like I just said, the option contract compared to the stock is seemingly exponential in how it moves. So while the stock moves up a dollar, you might see your call on call contract move up. Um, here is a better example. If you buy $1,000 worth of Apple and Apple moves up $1, if you buy, sorry, if you buy 100 shares of Apple and it moves up $1, your each share is worth $1 more. But in a contract, it's in an options contract, it's going to be calculated more than just with that dollar movement. It's going to be calculated by, for example, volatility. Um, it's going to be calculated by the probability that the stock is in the money during or at, at the time when it expires. So there's more to it than just thinking of it as a leveraged um, vehicle that you're borrowing money to invest in. That's not exactly the case. James says, since each contract lets you control 100 shares of stock, but obviously it won't be exactly like loaning the stock due to the option Greeks. So he points out how it's not exactly leverage. You are acting like you control 100 shares of stock. And he mentions the option Greeks, which are very important. Now, some of these long-term option traders don't even discuss the Greeks, but they understand what they are and they use different terminology for it. Because I come from a math background, I think it's a lot easier just to call them Greeks and to understand exactly what they mean. And when you look at those Greeks, you see the numbers for those Greeks, you'll understand what the stock will do, uh, what the option will do when the stock changes. For most long option traders, the easiest Greek and probably the most important Greek to understand is delta. So delta is going to be a number when you look up, um, so let's say you go into your trading software and you look up a bunch of options, you're going to see a deltas from anywhere from zero to one. Now they're all in decimals, it'll be 0 0.8 for example. But you can think of it as percentages, um, and you could just move the decimal to the right two spaces to get a number that's more easy to talk about. So we'd say, for example, the delta of this option is 50. The delta of another option maybe is 75. Now the differences between those two options would be made pretty clear just by talking about these deltas. We don't have to use uh, long sentences to describe how these differ, all you have to do is say this has a delta of 50 and I know exactly um, how the stock is going to move in the short term, or sorry, how the stock option is going to move in the short term when the stock moves. So if the stock moves up $1 and you've got a delta of 50, the stock option is going to act like 50 shares of stock. So it's going to gain 50 cents per share. Now remember, stock option treats your position as if you held 100 shares of stock, but that delta changes it. So if you see that your 
portfolio has a stock option with a 50 delta, you can treat that as 50 shares of stock. You can multiply the movement by 0.5 and that's essentially what you're to get. So if Apple moves up $1 tomorrow, your call, uh, your call contract, your long call contract, if it has a delta of 50, it's going to be worth $50 more. Now this is important because it teaches you <clears throat> exactly what you can expect from a stock in the short term, from a stock option in the short term. And uh, you can then go back to the idea of risk versus your potential profit and make some calculations that way. It's hard to talk about this stuff without a visual aspect, so that, that's why I like uh, using videos. But I think we can, we can get through this still in an informative way because we're going to use simple numbers here. So when you buy a call option, <clears throat> let's just talk about call options, long call options, because it's the easiest thing to talk about. It's mimicking holding a certain amount of shares of stock. The delta tells you that amount that you are not entitled to, but that's how it acts. So if you're holding an option with 50 delta, treat it like 50 shares of stock. When you go in a, and, and buy your options, when you're comparing options and you want to know which one's the best for you, this is going to be important, but when you choose an option, you don't really just want to look at the Greeks by themselves. If you're looking at a big list of options, and this is something um, new option traders have a problem with, they don't know which one to choose. Now obviously, higher delta is better if you have a positional thesis. If you think the stock is going to move upward, you want a higher delta, but the price of that contract the one with the higher delta is also going to be higher because you're entitled to more delta. Generally, what we're looking at is something that's in the money. The strike price of the option is lower than the real price of the stock. Now that's going to be more expensive and the question is, is it worth it? Well, this goes back to this is associated with way too many personal um, goals in the trade. So it's hard for me to answer this question. But one big tip I can give people is to start looking at ratios instead of just the Greeks alone. So you might look at the ratio of delta versus price. Look at the price of the call option and look at the delta of the call option. Take the delta, divide it by the price, you'll get a number. Now do that for other call options and what you're gonna find is you're going to find generally the ones that are out of the money have a higher ratio of this metric. In other words, you're going to get more profit if you're right if you buy the out of the money options. <clears throat> but that doesn't mean you should always buy the out of the money options. And the reason for that is if your option is out of the money and you're getting closer to the expiration date, the price of the option contract is going to spiral downward way more quickly than an in-the-money option. So think of it this way. Higher deltas are safer because they're probably going to be worth more money. They're probably going to be worth money at all in the end when the expiration date hits. Higher delta means the option will move more quickly in value and it also means it's safer. But it's more expensive and generally, and we'll get to this when we talk about order entry, generally the spread is wider, which means you usually don't get it at a great price. Let's keep going through this answer. Um, <clears throat> James gives an example. He says, instead of buying 100 shares of Apple, which would cost thousands of dollars, you can open a synthetic long for a fraction of the price and control the 100 shares of stock for the time being sharing in the gains and losses of the underlying. Now, he mentions a synthetic long, which is a great option strategy, but surprisingly not many people know of it. Even beginning options traders aren't familiar with it. It's a pretty simple concept to understand. It's called a synthetic long because you use options to build a position that looks exactly like a long stock position in terms of all of the Greeks. So let's uh, back up and review the Greeks really quickly. Delta tells you the amount of 
stock that you're mimicking. Um, theta tells you the daily price decline of that stock option. And uh, we'll get to two more that are less important, which are gamma. Gamma tells you the rate at which delta changes. So a higher gamma is obviously going to be better if you're in a positional trade. And then vega. Vega tells you the, <clears throat> the change in the stock option when the implied volatility of that option changes. Now, a synthetic long position gives you the same factors, should give you the same factors of the position you get when you buy stock. Now, what that means is when you buy stock, you're buying 100 shares. We're going to call it a lot. So a lot of stock is 100 shares. And if you buy a lot, you should get 100 delta. Now, a synthetic long gives you 100 delta. Um, when you buy stock, you should get a theta of zero. In other words, there is no time decay in the stock. You can hold it forever, and the price isn't going to change just because you're holding it for a long time. So a theta of zero is what you get when you get a synthetic long position. Then vega should also be zero because volatility of the stock doesn't change the price of the stock. And um, well, those are the most important factors for this. So a synthetic long strategy gives you these factors. It allows you to mimic holding 100 shares of stock pretty much exactly. How do you do this? How do you get this? And how much does it cost? Well, you get it by buying a call option and selling a put option. And you want those options to be the same, or you might say they're the opposite. So what you get is, for example, um, on Apple, let's say you buy what's Apple trading at these days. Check real quickly. So Apple right now is at 136. Let's say you buy a call option that's 100 that has a strike price of 136, and then you sell a put option that has a strike price of 136. That's a synthetic long. Now. You can change the strike prices if you want. So you might decide to make the call in the money and make the put out of the money, or vice versa. And as you change these, the Greeks are not going to change. The Greeks should be the same because you're making a synthetic long. So your delta is always going to be 100. And the reason we know that is all you have to do when you create a complex options position like this is you add the Greeks. So, um, and remember when you sell an option or you short an option, you put a minus sign in front of all the Greeks. So here's what you get. Um, let's say, let's say we're doing the 136 Apple. Uh, so what we got is a call option that is of delta 50, and a put option of delta minus 50, and then you subtract. So you got a 50 minus minus 50. That's 100. Your delta is always going to be 100. So let's say you move the strike price to 140. It's the same. It's just that your option, your call option, is going to have a delta of, let's say, 30. And then your put option is going to have a delta of minus 70. But still, you add those together and it's 100. So you're always going to have a delta of 100. Which brings us to this question What's the real difference? when you change the strike price of synthetic long. So if we're doing this with 130 versus 140, what's the difference? Well, the first difference you're going to notice is that they cost different amounts of money. In general, if you open a synthetic long position with a strike price that's at the money, it's exactly the same price as what the stock is currently trading at, it's going to be free. You open that position for free. So I like the idea of this because what you're getting is essentially 100 shares of stock for free. Now, of course, if they go down, you're going to owe money, but that's the idea. And this brings me back to the original question and my reason for asking it, which is what's the advantage of options versus stock? And one major advantage is you often don't have to pay anything for them. You get the position for free. Now, 
you can get the position for cost and you can also get the position for credit so you get money right away for opening the position it sounds great right so you get a hundred shares of Apple for a payment someone pays you to hold a hundred shares of Apple and really that is how it goes um, of course when you close the, close the position that's when the profit or loss actually comes into play now let's keep going through this question uh, we got another major advantage of options are the myriad strategies that can be used to profit not just from the movement of the underlying or lack thereof but also from volatility um, so here he's talking about different strategies that are not position or sorry not direction focused generally when you begin trading options you trade it just like a stock trader trades you buy because you think it's going to go up but as you get more in depth in options you realize that the vega greek can actually make you a lot of money because vega affects the option price so if we know that if volatility goes up vega also well, Vega will tell you um, how much that option changes. Couldn't we just wait for volatility spike? Hold on to an option. We don't care about the direction. We just want more volatility and then sell it afterwards. The answer is yes. You can buy a a. You, you don't have to buy. You can buy or sell a option strategy that's completely based on volatility and not at all based on directional movement and still make a profit so <clears throat> let's say you know a lot about a certain stock and you've been watching it for a long time and one characteristic of that stock is in March it tends to get extremely volatile but you can't predict accurately enough which way it's gonna go you can still make profit from from just going long volatility so you design an options contract just like we talked about. You add up the Vegas or you subtract the Vegas until you get a long Vega strategy. And a long Vega strategy means that your position has a Vega that's positive and far away from zero. So if you get a strategy that's all about Vega, it tells you the option price is going to change by you know 50 bucks for every one percent increase in the volatility of the stock all you have to do is open that position wait for the volatility to spike and then close that position with a profit so you don't need directional movements at all to make money from options in other words we've opened up a world where you don't have to be a positional trader you don't have to be a directional trader every time you don't have to predict accurately whether stocks go up or down you can predict whether the stocks volatility is going to go up or down and this is really great when you know that certain times or events will affect the volatility in, in reliable manners one example of this is earnings after earnings volatility drops because it doesn't really move as much after an earnings trade as it does during the earnings and directly before the earnings. The reason is pretty clear. The earnings report moves the stock pretty drastically and let's say a month before the earnings report all the way to the earnings report people are buying and selling in anticipation of the earnings report which makes the stock move more quickly which equals volatility. So if you have a reliable strategy like that you can, if you have a reliable um, phenomenon like that, you can design a strategy that's also reliable. You can make a long Vega options position through earnings, and then you can switch to a short Vega uh, at earnings. So when the volatility of the stock drops, you buy back your short Vega options position and you make money that way. Now, the real advantage, in my opinion, of using options for earnings trades, you might, uh, you probably know that I, I do a lot of earnings trades, is 
that you can combine the positional aspect, sorry, the directional, I keep saying positional, you can combine the directional aspect with the volatility aspect. So if you know, or if you believe that, let's say Apple is going to go up on earnings and it's become less volatile after earnings, as it usually does, then you can design a strategy that's long delta. In other words, we want to mimic the stock so that we get that directional movement profit and it's short vega. That gives us a profit when the volatility is crushed. If you do those both, not only can you get essentially double profits because, well, you're, you're getting a profit from the directional side and you're getting a profit from the volatility side, but if you're wrong on one of them and right on the other, they balance each other out in many ways so that sometimes you come out even if you're wrong on the the direction you come out even or even ahead now this is something i think most options traders really need to understand before they get into short-term trades because too many people will at the beginning when they start trading options will believe that being long on a call is enough to profit from a upwards movement. And you can probably guess that that's not true because if volatility is crushed, the option price will go down. And if it goes down faster than the option price goes up, when the direction goes up, well, you're gonna lose money even though you were right. So let's say I believe that next quarter, Apple's earnings will go up and that the market has not adequately price this into the stock at the moment. So I might buy an Apple uh, call contract hoping that it's going to go up. Let's say it does go up, but I find that I've lost money. That's actually quite a common occurrence. And the reason for this is we've ignored Vega. We've ignored the volatility. And that's something you can't do when you trade options. So it is a bit more complex to trade options than to trade stock because you do have to consider these other factors. Um, <clears throat> and that might be intimidating to many traders because they'd rather just predict whether companies could go up or down and not have to worry about the volatility. But if you trade options, you either have to worry about the volatility or you have to make sure that your trades are volatility neutral. So your Vega is zero in essence. And you can't do that with a single option. You have to do that with multiple options. So you'd have to make a complex option strategy. Now I realize all of this sounds pretty complex, having to add all the vegas and deltas. But if you have a list, as I do, of option strategies that work for different uh, combinations, for example, long on the position but short on volatility, then all you have to do is look through that list of option strategies and choose the one that you feel most comfortable with. For example, if you want to be neutral on Vega, that is, you don't want to care or have to research volatility, what you can do is, and we're talking about a positional trade where we hope the stock to go up, in general you would buy a I'm saying in most <clears throat> situations, if you didn't care about volatility, you would buy a call option and you could be damaged by ignoring volatility with that. So instead of doing that, you can, for example, you can create a uh, synthetic long, which is neutral on volatility. Or what you can do is you can sell puts. Um, in this case, you limit your profit, but by selling puts, you're going to be able to get negative vegas into that position. Long calls, I think, generally are, are pretty good. They aren't, they aren't vega neutral, but for a lot of cases, the long call isn't affected that much by volatility um, for a stock that doesn't have large volatility increases. Now, how do you know whether a stock is going to be one of those stocks that moves a lot? Well, you can go back to its history. You can look at the historical volatility and graph it. And if the line's pretty much straight, you can just buy a call option or a put option without having to worry too much about volatility. But 
Otherwise, some good trades are short put spreads, can be Vega neutral, um, long out of the money call butterflies, long in the money put butterflies, long out of the money call condors, long in the money put condors, short combos, which is the same as a long um, synthetic strategy. You'll hear me use those interchangeably. And bull spreads, which is a uh, combination of call options that doesn't give you unlimited risk. So a bull spread would be your long one option with a low strike price, and then your short and out of the money call option with higher strike price. These are all pretty much vega neutral and allow you not to have to worry about volatility. If you get into these trades during, for example, earnings, and uh, you hear all your friends getting into similar or simpler trades and losing money, you don't have losing money because of volatility issues. You don't have to worry about it because your Vega is going to be essentially neutral, so volatility won't affect you, and you can just focus on your directional thesis. Now let's move on to a question. Oh, we're not done with his answer yet. So he says another major advantage of options are um, if you only own the stock, you can't profit if the stock moves sideways or if it's flat. But if you use options, you can open, for example, an iron condor to profit from sideways movement. That's exactly what I just talked about. Now, there's also an issue of holding stock when the stock moves sideways that many traders just, or investors I'd say, ignore for the most part, which is there's a huge opportunity cost to hold on to a stock that's moving sideways. Yeah, you didn't lose any money, but there's capital in there and that capital could have been better used in you know, something that could produce a profit now, if you're um, buying stock for dividends, of course, dividends will pay off, but that's only every, uh, every quarter. So what happens during reliable sideways trending seasons, for example, a stock that pretty much is dead and just moves sideways during every February? What are you supposed to do then? Now, James points out the iron condor strategy, which is a pretty safe strategy with limited risk. What you do is you sell credit spreads that are both put credit spreads and call credit spreads, and you earn money from theta, which is the second Greek we talked about. Now, I'm not gonna get into that because we have limited time. Uh, I wanna get through this answer, but if you just Google me and then type in something like iron condor, I'm sure you can find some examples of those sideways strategies. If you are a member of the Gap Game Plan, if you look into the the advanced section, the advanced strategies section, I think is the bonus section of that course, you'll find a list of uh, sideways strategies that you can use. These days I don't use a lot of sideways strategies because I don't want to hold for a long time, um, but there's nothing wrong with them if you're okay with slowly making money over a long period of time and that's what investors tend to do anyway so it always amazes me for example now when the market is pretty much overbought and nothing is really cheap investors are still looking for things to buy but if I were an investor what I'd be doing is looking for things that are going to be in a reliably um, solid trading region and start opening sideways strategies on those stocks and James says that options also allow you to profit when you don't know which way the stock will move by going long or short volatility. So we already talked about that. And then he mentions weekly options that give you better or more time horizons and liquidity, and he's completely right. Weekly options are the most liquid options on the market. So if you want to trade in the short term, if you want to trade that only lasts for five days or less, Weekly options are pretty much perfect for you. They are the best thing to buy when you're worried about spreads and liquidity. Now, we're gonna move on to order entries. 
What I meant by order entry when I asked this question was how do you put in your order exactly? When you first start buying stock, maybe your first transaction, um, you probably use the market order, which means that you just buy <clears throat> at whatever price is out there on the market. So if Apple right now is trading at $136.66, you put in the market order, you think that you're getting Apple for $136.66, but the truth is you're probably buying it for more because the market order is whatever order is out there that's closest to the stated price of the stock, but isn't exactly that. Now, for a liquid stock like Apple, you're generally gonna get exactly what you see, but when you go into less popular stocks, less popular investments, you're gonna find that there's an issue of spread. So the buyer of the stock, he wants to buy it at a low price, and the seller wants to buy it at a high price, but they haven't agreed on a price. If they did, they would have already made that transaction. But the stock market is a bunch of these pending transactions, and as soon as you hit the price that someone is asking, <clears throat> that's when the transaction will go underway. So this is something you have to deal with, and what I say is this is what we call order entry. It's an important part of trading because it's something you do every time you make a trade, but it's not often thought about. So I prompted this question because I think I think there's several people out there who have thought about it and have come up with some clever option, or not even options, any type of um, entry trade for whatever they're buying, and I wanted to know <clears throat> what they do. And I'll tell you what I do in a minute here. So let's look at what James answered. Here he says, the best order entry tips are to know yourself and know how much risk you're willing to take. So I'm gonna just stop here because I don't think he interpreted the question as I wanted it to be interpreted. Let's just go ahead and start from level one. You have an options contract or strategy you want to buy. We'll just deal with a contract because it's easy. You have an options contract you want to buy and you see that it's currently trading on the market at $135 and it's going to be written as 1.35. So in options we always use decimals and uh, if you want to make it more realistic you just multiply by 100. So we're going to call this 135. So you see the last trade is 135 but that doesn't mean you can get it 135. What you need to look at is the bid and the ask for that contract. If you go and make that trade and you select market instead of limit, what you're going to get is the ask when you buy and the bid when you sell. So you're going to get the worst possible price that's out there um, right now. And <clears throat> what you want to do is you want to find a way to avoid getting ripped off, quote unquote. Here's what I do, and it's worked for me um, probably for a year or two now, and I believe it's worth your time. It sounds time consuming, but it's really not at all. Here's what you do. You look, we're gonna say you're buying an option, okay? Now you're buying an option between the bid and the ask spread. So that's going to be our range. We're going to make it simple. I'm going to say that the we're going to buy something that's not so liquid and the uh, bid is $100 and the ask is uh, um, $150. So that's our range. Now, generally you want the midpoint and most traders will recommend just put in the midpoint. Just put in $125 and you'll get your order filled and you don't have to worry about it. Um, that's true for the most part. You generally will get your option order filled if you put in the midpoint, but you could do a lot better. And if you're trading, for example, daily, you're going to want to do a lot better because those small transactions, uh, the small, those small areas where you could have gotten it for a better price are going to add up in the long run. So here's what I do. Look at the 
we're buying, right? So look at the bid. And we want to beat the bid. Because what the bid is, is <clears throat> a unfilled proposition to buy at that number. And if it's unfilled, it means no one's willing to sell at that price. So we don't want the bid. We want to go higher than the bid, but not too much higher. For options, for most options, very liquid options, this is not true. You can, you can go up penny by penny. Um, but for most options, the increments at which you increase the bid is $5. So let's go back to this example where the bid is 100 and the ask is 150. What would I do to put in an order that will beat most of the uh, general strategies, which are usually by the midpoint? Here's what I would do. Look at the bid, add $5. After you add $5, then you enter that trade. So I would put in an, an entry with a limit order for $105. And I'd wait five minutes. Now, during that five minutes, a few things could happen. <clears throat> One is the stock could fluctuate and change everybody's bid and ask so that you actually get it at that price. Two is that some people could see that the bid has um, risen and someone who's holding on to that option could decide, okay, 105 is good enough for me and they will change their order or they might put in an order when they had none before and you'll get it for $105. And the third is an algorithm or someone who's a really frequent day trader might see that you that someone put in a bid for $105, that's you, and decide to meet that bid because they feel it's reasonable. So that's why we're gonna wait five minutes. Any of those things could happen and that could get you filled at 105. Because generally what happens for most new traders is they put in a low price, they wait, it doesn't get filled, and then they get discouraged and then they're like, well, I guess we should go back to the uh, midpoint strategy and just Put in $125. We're not doing that. <clears throat> what we're doing is we're putting in $105, we're waiting five minutes, then we're canceling that order or we're changing the order. Usually is easier just to change it. We're changing the order by another $5. So you move up to $110. Now you do the same thing. Wait five minutes, see if it's filled, and then you go up another $5. And you do that all the way up <clears throat> to the midpoint, at which time you wait longer. So as you get closer to the midpoint, you're gonna wait longer each time. And you will find that, at least in my experience, I don't think, I can't remember a time where I had to pay more than the midpoint. And it's hard for me to remember a time. I think very rarely do I actually even pay the midpoint. So I'm all, almost always paying lower than the midpoint for my option contracts. And I'm sure that has saved me a lot of money in the long run <clears throat> versus the old version of me, which was by the midpoint. So that's what I recommend you guys try out. Even if you're doing it for stock, you're gonna find that it's gonna make you save a lot of money in the long run. So try that out. Again, start with the bid. If you're buying an option, start with the bid and move it up by $5, wait, move it up by $5, wait, just keep doing that. And you'll surprise yourself. You you often get it very close to the bid, <clears throat> which is something that you probably couldn't have thought would happen before if you were used to buying at the midpoint. Now, on the other side of it, after you've bought, after you bought, after you bought a contract and you're ready to sell it, what do you do? Same thing, but this time, when you sell, you put in your sell order and you start at the ask price and you move it down $5. And these two things, if you save money on the first one when you're opening it, you're gonna save money on the second one when you're closing it. And you're gonna find that these, even these wide bid ask spreads where it's like $50, it seems in many cases too wide to even play, you'll find that it actually works. I've done it on options that have no volume <clears throat> and um, very little open interest. And I've found that I've surprised myself many times by being able to get almost the bid price on options that are not even really popular, not even really traded that much. 
So try it out, and uh, I'm sure it'll work for you. And if it doesn't, tell me what's going on and give me an example, and uh, I can help you out personally with uh, <clears throat> opening or closing an order like that. So let's move on to question number three. I think we're almost near that one hour mark. Question number three is how much do you need to start trading? Now I've already answered this question in an entire course that I have on my website, uh, how to start trading with $500. So obviously there's my answer, $500. Uh, <clears throat> but a little more money would be a little more realistic. And the reason for that is even though you can buy some contracts, some option contracts for $100 or $200, you don't want to begin your trading career with only a couple trades. You want to have a little bit of uh, leeway for yourself so that you know you can fail on the first few trades and not be completely broke. Uh, I started with about $3,000 back when I was 26 or so and uh, I blew my account up once uh, a year or two later <clears throat> so I had to start with a very low amount of money so I've started I've started from the beginning I know how it is it's slow but it works out and when you first start out with a small amount of capital the main thing you gotta worry about is transaction fees so you really gotta find a broker that will give you the lowest possible transaction fees so that you're not eating those commissions even though your trades are right and uh, finding yourself making almost no profit because if you're doing those small trades of $100 and you're taking a $10 commission on both sides when you open and you close the trade you're spending 20% of your entire capital just on commissions that shouldn't be what you're doing here so make sure that you've got the lowest possible commissions you can and try to start with a higher amount of capital. Just a few thousand dollars would be enough. Um, <clears throat> of course, another issue you gotta worry about is that if you're starting with a lower amount of money, like a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, up to I'd say five thousand dollars, if you're starting with these lower amounts of capital, you're gonna have to make bigger trades percentage-wise. So unlike the guy who starts with uh, you know 100k and can throw $2,000 at a trade and be wrong and not have it impact his portfolio, the traders who start with a couple thousand dollars or a thousand dollars, he's going to have to put in pretty much the same amount. He's not going to be able to, to make decent trades with you know $50 options. You're going to want to put in bigger amounts and. What I really do recommend, and, and this is in my uh, How to Start Trading with $500 course, is put in one-fourth of your beginning capital if your capital is small. If it's under, under $3,000 or even $5,000, start making trades that are one-fourth of your entire capital. And what I mean by that is don't... All right, so here's what I mean by that. Let's say you start a brokerage account with $5,000 we'll do $4,000 because it makes more sense so you start an account you open an account with $4,000 and you're going to be putting in one-fourth of your capital into each trade so the first trade you make is going to be a thousand dollar trade now the second trade you make it's not going to be another thousand dollar trade it's going to be three thousand divided by four dollars you get that you're going to be put in, you're putting in one-fourth of your cash, so not total capital. So if you have an outstanding trade, that trade is sat there, and you're looking at your cash as a separate account, and you're going to open one-fourth. And uh, <clears throat> mathematically, you can basically never lose your capital because you're always making smaller and smaller trades. Um, <clears throat> Of course, realistically, you're going to want to stop at a certain value. So you're going to want to give yourself a, a lower cap a amount that you don't trade. For example, let's say you don't want to make a trade that's $100 because, like I said, you're going to be spending about 20% of that trade's capital on transactions, which is not good. So how much money do you need to start? Well, 
because so many people have asked me this question and many people are younger, I find that there's a lot of younger people like in the military or traveling who want to do trading um, just as a hobby or part-time or just for some extra cash, but they don't have a lot of money to put in. You can do it with a few thousand dollars. Just make sure that your bets are sizable and you don't mind losing a thousand dollars on a trade. Now, with that said, we're not going to be putting a thousand dollars on a long call option that will expire, and you're not going to put it all on about a bunch of out of money uh, trades. You're going to make sure that your options are smartly purchased so that they're going to have some um, implicit value, whether it be time premium or actual value because they're far in the money. You'd be doing that so that you're not really going to risk the whatever you put into that option. You're not going to be like the example I said at the beginning where you can lose everything on a single option trade. Instead, even if you're wrong, you're going to come out with some cash so that let's say you put in $1,000 on a trade and you're wrong, but the option at the end of the trade is worth $500. That's because that extra $500 will put into that option so that the option would have better Greeks, so that you'd have higher delta, um, so that you'd have a lower theta, and this stuff is probably the most important when you're trading in a, on a small account. So I think I've said what I need to say on starting with a certain amount of capital. So let's see what James has to say. He says, the amount you need to start with depends on the individual. He goes on to say that start small, limit your contract size, and don't risk more than 1-2% to of your capital per trade. I think these numbers are a bit unrealistic. 1-2% to of your capital on a single trade um, I think that's way too small. Uh, maybe he's trading with an extremely large account. That's possible. And in that case, it would make sense. <clears throat> but just as I gave an example of someone who trades with $3,000 and James is giving an example of a larger account, you'll find that between two people, you can't discuss options or trades percentage-wise. It just doesn't make sense. You can't give recommendations um, in terms of percentage of absolute capital, of absolute cash. So if I don't know how much money you have, I can't tell you how much to put on a trade percentage-wise. All right, so let's, let's go through this with an open mind and see the rest of his answer. He says that uh, he never goes above 2% per trade, and the winner is one who lives to trade another day. A common misconception of trading is that you want to find the needle in the haystack and hit the jackpot. But we all know that successful trading involves many trades over long periods of time to benefit from the law of large numbers. As far as how much money you need to start trading full-time, I, I know Damon recommends you don't start until you have at least 25, 30K on a bankroll. Okay, so let's go back to, all right, so he makes one point here where he says, a successful trader is someone who doesn't lose all of their capital, is someone who uses the law of large numbers, which is being correct most of the time to make money over the long run. Now this is pretty much correct, and. Um, if you're trading, for example, without, all right, so let's go back to another thing he says, and we'll put both of these things in context. So he says that uh, we're not looking for a needle in a haystack and hitting the jackpot. We're looking to get you know, smaller profits over a long time. Now, that's not exactly true. The idea of an earnings trade, for example, is that we are positioned to make a lot of money on a single trade and we're using options to change the payoff so it's non-linear so that um, let's say the stock moves up two dollars instead of one dollar we're not going to get two dollars more we're going to get like four dollars more from that trade so 
This is something that I would love to teach visually so that I can chart this stuff. But the idea is you can make money many ways via trading. You don't have to be the type of trader who makes small profits you know, day by day. You can be the type of trader who makes one or two big trades per month and makes them correctly and has those pay off because you've done the research and you know that the probability is high. Or you can even be the type of trader who trades low probability. For example, you're trading to where you're only successful 30% of the time, but you still are profitable because every time you trade, you make, let's say, 300% on that trade. Whereas when you lose, you don't, I mean, the max you can lose is 100%, but the idea here is we're playing in a non-linear fashion. So we don't have to be the type of trader who's kind of like the dividends trader who just makes small amount of monies, a small amount of money, um, <clears throat> you know, four times a, a year. We can be the type of trader who designs our own portfolio, uh, not portfolio, designs our own um, profit. Let's call it, what am I looking for? What am I looking for here? Uh, risk profile. That's what I'm looking for. So we're looking to design a risk profile that makes sense in terms of expected profit versus expected loss. And there are two things we have to look at here. It's the probability of being correct and that exact uh, ratio that I just said. The, the idea of profit versus loss. So these two things can be in balance. We don't need to be correct all the time, but we can be correct all the time. And if we're correct all the time, we don't need to make large profits every time. But if we're not correct often, we need to make sure that we're focusing on trades that will pay off with large profits. You can do a little of both too. That could be a form of diversification. Um, now, James says that I don't recommend trading until you have 25K or 30K. And um, that's in regards to full-time. You can be a part-time trader with less than that, but 25K is the minimum if you're gonna be a day trader, if you're gonna trade options every day, if you're gonna swing trade. It's a lot safer to have 25K in your account because you could be flagged as a, data, a pattern day trader by the SEC and that could get you in trouble. And also 25K, it's just a, it's just a safer number, especially if you're dealing with with option trades that are quick, for example, earnings trades, if you could be the type of trader who buys an option right before earnings and then sells right after earnings, your trade by trade um, differences are going to be huge. Your profits and losses are going to be in you know close to the 100 percentages. So you're going to have to be able to handle that. And if you're throwing in, let's say, even $1,000 per trade, if you're throwing in these, this like a small amount of capital per trade, but you're losing it, let's say, 40% of the time, and you're almost doubling it 60% of the time, it's going to be good in the long run, but these daily fluctuations are going to be huge. And I'm saying daily because day trader, but you don't have to be a day trader. So here's the idea. Because each fluctuation is big, if you're not trading often, your account's going to be just crazy in terms of how it changes. But if you're trading day by day, if you look at the end of each week, you're going to be pretty good because let's say you've made five trades per week and it's going to be huge profits and huge losses every time those two things happen. But at the end of the week, it seems pretty even. And the end of every week, when you, you look at the uh, pattern, you'll find that you're actually going up pretty smoothly. Maybe you're, you're increasing 10% per week. And if you're not doing it as a day trader, it could look pretty awful. You could be up 10% you know, this week and then down 50% next week. That just doesn't look good. Uh, it doesn't feel good to have your portfolio change so to such an extent if you're not doing this full time um, so that you look at it day by day instead of month by month. But again, this is a very personal issue. 
And if you want to know what I recommend for your size of capital you're willing to put in, you can shoot me an email, say, you know, I've got 30K, how much should I be putting into each trade? Um, this is actually something that's probably better for phone coaching because we have to discuss the trade type as well. But these are issues that are personal, but still have pretty good general heuristics that you can use. There's something called the Kelly formula, which can give you pretty mathematically pretty accurate and pretty reliable. So it's definitely something you should check in on. You should do a little research on the Kelly formula if you're interested in position sizing. And if you're beginning, if you've just started out trading, position sizing shouldn't be your uh, priority here. You should probably be looking at the the things that will make you money, which is your trade strategy instead of your um, account management. But in the end, and I say this to many people I have uh, phone coaching sessions with, is that trading relies on successful trading relies on two main factors. One is your trading strategy and the second is money management. If you have one but not the other, you can see your portfolio spiral downward. You need both and um, that's why I brought this issue up. But like I said, before you even get into trading, you need to have a pretty reliable trading strategy that's the beginning of most traders careers you've got the trading strategy okay great now let's deal with the money management which is a, a simpler task to deal with anyway so I think we've gotten everything we needed to get done today in this uh, episode of the podcast and uh, again please check my Seeking Alpha blog for the next contest you can put in your entry remember to respond don't send me an email okay all the emails that you send don't get added into the contest. So respond directly under the post with your answers to the questions and you'll be entered into the contest. That's it for this time on Stock Talk. And I hope to, well, I won't be seeing you, but I hope to be in your ears again next week.